Hello, everybody. This is not Dave Kale welcoming you to Film Film. What are we at? Number seven, 217, I think we're yeah, at, right? 17th session. Uh, and we're doing episode. episode 13. Yeah. Ooh, final Season episode. Season finale. So Dave Kale, new daddy, is, right. is absent today. And we're, we haven't actually not heard from him, but as Corey shared with us before we went on the air, he remembers well the days of being a new daddy and is not terribly surprised that we have not heard. We figure he's probably deep asleep at the moment. <laughs> um, right. Or so, has been awake he, for, for, you know, 38 hours or whatever, right. you know. They are the they are the proud parents of a bouncing baby boy, and when I say bouncing, I'm talking nine pounds plus. Yeah, he was nine kid. pounds six. Baby Kale was. Uh, baby boy. Kale was enormous. Uh, yeah, just you know, and Teresa is not a large person, so it's just yeah. like, oh my goodness. Yeah. And uh, I know his first name was Wallace. I don't remember his middle name. Robert. Wallace. Robert. Robert. Wallace. Yes. Robert Kale. Yeah. So, uh, so unfortunately, we don't get to, you know, do massive amounts of congratulations, but we have next Friday, so hopefully we'll see him next Friday. Exactly. Or maybe yeah, later we'll, today. We will congratulate him when so, we do see him. So, I am Trish Lambert, uh, at Tolkien Maven. Uh, am I, what am I at? Tolkien Maven. No, what am I on Twitter? I don't remember. But anyway, that doesn't matter because Corey Olson is at Token Prof, so that's the important thing. <laughs> All right. And, you know... You that's know, a great start. That's so, Corey, get me out of this hole. Okay. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming back, and we're glad to be here. Uh, we hope that, uh, uh, again, we do hope that Dave will be back next week. Um, again, he may even pop in now, but uh, I don't know. Uh, anyway, so, um, but today we are talking about the season finale of, uh, of season two which is pretty exciting. Um, but first, a couple of announcements, because there are several uh, pretty exciting things that are happening and have been happening. Of course, the biggest, most exciting announcement uh, in the film film family is the one we already made about Baby Kale. So uh, uh, <laughs> our reason why Dave wasn't announcing us today is announcement number one. Um, <laughs> The other thing is uh, something that just happened uh, this week. You may remember in the last episode, I was announcing the new Lord of the Rings class that I was going to start doing, the Exploring the Lord of the Rings um, uh, sessions where I'm going to be going uh, in as leisurely a fashion as I choose <laughs> through the Lord of the Rings. It is my goal to d talk my way through the Lord of the Rings at greater leisure and with a more perfect self-indulgence than I have ever done before. I've always like rushed through in order to try to meet semester deadlines and stuff. So I'm doing it. I'm, I'm loving the idea of doing this entirely outside of the schedule of any semester or anything like that. Um, and I'm just going to do, uh, I, yeah, so I'm just going to do the kind of in-depth treatment that I did, uh, in my Hobbit book with the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and I'm going to take as long as it takes. Um, so far in this first episode, we did, I did, uh, from chapter one, the long expected party and I, it's going to be at least two more weeks on the long expected yeah, I was, party. I was going to tell you guys, so to, so to give you kind of like a reference, you know, like a gauge here, he's going to do the first chapter in three sessions. Yeah. So yeah. And that's, that's if I, that's if I hustle along in the next two weeks. Right. I mean, we yeah, could get sidetracked. This was not 
I mean, he was like engaged the whole entire time, right? I mean, people were people oh, yeah. were engaged. It was, it was, was engaged. It was and it was still only like the first third. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, was it, was, awesome. it, it was an hour and a half, uh, you know, uh, heavy going there. So, but, so yeah. But I gotta say honestly, you know, this is this is what close reading is about, right? Yeah. I mean, taking it really slowly, this and I'm like, noticing yeah, exactly. things and nuances. Because I don't think I've ever read it that closely before, you know, especially the first chapter. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 I know what happens. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I want to get on to the action kind of thing. Right. But really reading it closely, I mean, there's some, re- some really interesting stuff comes out of it. And we, we covered a, a bunch of that uh, on Tuesday. So it's on the YouTube channel. Anybody who missed it, That's it's right. up on our Signum University YouTube channel. And we'll continue to be. And also, I guess it will be on, it'll be, I don't think it is yet, but on iTunes U and also on it is, I Token think, Professor actually. Podcasts and Audio. Oh, good. Okay. And the cool thing about iTunes. You, you get the slides too, so that's nice. Okay, exactly. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you can you can do, and it was it was awesome. It was uh, it was a it was a, a big event. Um, it was a it was a huge success. It was really really fun. Um, in fact, we set a record. In, no, we obliterated a record for <laughs> uh, for biggest Signum Mythgard gathering ever. There were four hundred people live in the exploring the Lord of the Rings session uh, on Tuesday. It was kind of incredible incredible um so that was awesome and uh you know and we've gotten a lot of traffic on the um yeah tom you're right it was way more than a gross uh maybe we should maybe maybe we should shoot for 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 12 cubed i don't know uh but anyway it it was it was uh it was it was it was awesome it was i was kind of stunned um uh, so anyway, it was really fun. Really looking forward to this coming week. I've already got. I'm actually already prepared for this coming week, and uh, I'm looking forward to 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 moving through and discussing kind of Bilbo's the the reintroduction of Bilbo's career. You know, sort of the Bilbo story arc in 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 chapter one is what I'm going to be focusing on uh, in the second week. So. Um, Anyway, it was uh, it was it was great. So I hope that you can join us. And and remember that is not in the net moot like this. Um, the exploring the Lord of the Rings class is being done on the Twitch channel, uh, which uh, we, which is our 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 other alternative uh, uh, broadcast mode. Uh, just twitch.tv slash signumu, and. Um, uh, anyway, so it, that that's that that's been great, and of course, uh, as I mentioned before, there's like the the in-game uh, Lotro field trip at the end of the session where we went this past time to the to 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 the party tree and to and I realized something uh, when I mean it, it was it was really fun. Like I actually found during the field trip, I kind of I I I sort of realize something that I hadn't uh, that I hadn't thought about before um, and again it's and this is based on something that Lotro is not even making up I mean they're just following they're just following not Tolkien's text but Tolkien's paintings actually um, Hobbiton in the hill they have set up just like Tolkien painted it um, in his famous uh, image of Hobbiton and uh, and but I realized when I was actually standing in the middle of it, you know, when I was when I was like in the 3D representation of the hill and Bagshot Row um, about how bag from his front doorstep, you know, if you stand in front of of Gaffer Gamgee's hole at number three Bagshot Row, what you're looking at is like the estate of Sandyman, the miller, <laughs> like basically everything you can see between between Bagshot Row and uh, and and the river is all mill related. 
Um, and so thinking of the, his dislike for the Miller and the animosity between uh, Gaffer and Sandyman was really, for me, kind of put into a really interesting context uh, by actually kind of standing, having just talked about that conversation and then going and looking uh, uh, looking at... Um, at the 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 sort of the 3D thing it was it was actually really interesting so anyhow um it's uh it's been and um great stuff. i need to just let everybody know i mean if you can make it next tuesday and actually any tuesday after but this next tuesday will be especially interesting uh standing stone the developers have created actually a, a scholars hall specifically because of this course i mean it's open to the public but it's specific. and i've just gone into it and Corey. oh it's there yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sweet. Oh I can't wait. my gosh. Yeah. Griffo's going to go in there. Uh, yeah. Uh, in it a is couple hours, really so. amazing. So, anyway, so yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, this, uh, is, this it's has been really... a really fun. This class has been uh, sort of the beginning of kind of a. a, a you know, we've been working with the, the Lotro folks uh, a little bit more actively as we've been preparing for this class, and they've been really supportive and helpful. And so it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the, the lecture hall they built for us. So, cool. Anyway, There's already right. some, uh, some of our kiddies are already in here looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Cool. Anyway, yeah, so it'll be really fun. Neat. Okay, so that was the second announcement. The third announcement is another very exciting thing that's happening. It has not begun yet, but will begin next week on Thursday afternoon Eastern Time. Um, and uh, uh, Halstein, you'll be glad to hear it, it's a thing happening at a Europe-friendly time. Um, the um, uh, 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 we're having another seminar, another special s- seminar, a three-part seminar over the last three weeks of January with the great, the legendary Tom Shippey. Uh, he's going to teach uh, a Beowulf seminar, but not just a Beowulf. I mean, uh, of course, Tom Shippey has talked about Beowulf quite a lot, but what he's going to be doing in this seminar is talking about the published Beowulf, the Beowulf edition that just came out from uh, from from the Tolkien estate, you know, from Christopher uh, a couple years back. And specifically what Shippy is going to be doing is is going to be doing a, a close examination of Tolkien's notes and Tolkien's translation of Beowulf, which of course was until the time that was published a couple of years ago private, right? That is to say, it's not just that nobody had seen it before because we hadn't, but also it was private to Tolkien. Like those are his own private writings, not what he had prepared for publication. So what he's going to be doing is comparing what Tolkien said about Beowulf in his famous published essay on Beowulf, which is of course such a cornerstone, not only of Anglo-Saxon studies in the whole 20th century, but also such a cornerstone of a lot of what people think about Tolkien's writing himself. I mean, I don't, I, I don't even know how many times when people talk about Tolkien and people talk about his approach to writing stories and things like that, they, they refer back to the stuff that he said about Beowulf in that article. Well, anyway, what, what, what Shippey's going to be doing is sort of comparing when Tolkien was thinking and writing about Beowulf in private, what did he say and how did he think about it and how does that compare with what he said about Beowulf in public? Um, so it's going to be sort of Tom Shippey showing us sort of a new side of, uh, of Tolkien's relationship uh, with Beowulf. It's going to be, I think, really super exciting. So that's going to start on Thursday, the 12th of January. Um, and uh, that will go, as I say, for three weeks, starting on the 12th. So uh, definitely keep on the lookout for that, because that's going to be uh, a pretty awesome opportunity. So 
All right. And here endeth the announcements. So we have a lot of um, a lot of stuff to talk about this week because it's the season finale that we're talking about. So the the there are a couple things that I want to kind of deal with at the beginning. I want to make sure I want to sort of step back for a bit, and I want to focus first on because that this is. This is really important from a big picture standpoint, so I want to begin by looking at this episode from the widest possible angle, right? Um, what is the, our emphasis in this ep- episode, and what is the role of this episode in this entire season? I want to make sure that we're kind of thinking, because this is our job, right, um, uh, our, is thinking through what is this season about? What is the overall purpose? Now, to some extent, we kind of follow the story, um, you know, and and a lot of things have been kind of unfolding as we've been going through the season that we wouldn't necessarily have predicted from the beginning. Um, but yet, nevertheless, uh, you know, from here, we need we do need to be thinking, what kind of a shape would we want to give to the season as a whole? What is, you know, so, so one, one kind of question that I ask myself as we come to the end of the season is, what is season two about? And specifically, what is this episode about? What should be the emphasis? What exactly are we going for? Um, as far as this episode is concerned, it seems to me that the, the, the primary note of this episode is tragedy. And that we're... But tragedy, I think we have to, you know, be sort of carefully insist upon uh, in a particular way. Not just tragedy in the sense of, like, bad and sad things happen, right? Of course, the, the, the darkening of Valinor is tragic in the sense of it is... Uh, you know, a tragic loss. You've got the loss not only of the trees, but the loss also of the Silmarils, and that's a big deal. But that is actually a far less big deal than the tragedy of people, like the fall of people, and that's really the big, the, the by far bigger deal. And in this episode, we are getting, um, in a sense... Please bear with me with when I say in a sense. We are getting, in a sense, the fall of two of our biggest characters, of Feanor and of Melkor. Now, I say in a sense of Melkor because, of course, Melkor has already fallen, and we know that. But we talked about this before. This came up, I don't even remember when, a long time ago, but still in season two. Um, and I remember how much I loved this idea when we were talking about it back then. And that is the significant, you know, the, the kind of of uh, the kind of importance that we can get out of the change of Melkor's name. You know, we talked about how although he is evil and has been evil, he's still Melkor, right? He has not, you know, that that there should be the transition he makes when he's burned by the Silmarils and he's almost killed by Ungoliant and he returns to Middle-earth and never takes, uh, you know, it, it loses the power to change his form, you know, to, uh, to, to, to go about unbodied and all that stuff. Um, this is still a, a, an important moment for Melkor, an important moment in his, in his development, in his character. There's a, there's a kind of, 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 you know, uh, Rubicon that he crosses here. Um, things are different for Melkor. And of course that's signaled 
by the change of his name. Now, it's Feanor that changes his name, right? Feanor calls him Morgoth, and he's known as Morgoth hereafter. Um, but again, I think it's really cool, and the thing that I really loved when we, had, when we had brought up this idea weeks back is that that's not just a reflection of how people look at him and think of him, right? Of course, the Noldor had, many of them, had liked him and trusted him. Um, when he was among them in in Valinor. So obviously, one element of the story is they don't love him anymore, (laughs) right? And so we have, of course, the difference of the perspective of the Noldor towards Melkor changing. But that's less interesting. I mean, that's great, and we do that, but that's, to me, not the cool thing, right? The cool thing is that that shift in their perspective also maps onto a real change, in him himself. He has done something irrevocable, which I think is is clearly signaled by the fact that he is changed. He's physically changed. Like he can't he can, you know, he now cannot go unbodied anymore. Um and you know, so he's 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 done something to himself. He's he it's, it's and so this is why I say in a sense what we have on the, what, what we need to be depicting, what we need to be thinking about in this episode is the is the fall, the final fall, not the final fall, second fall, the penultimate fall <laughs> of 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 Melkor. I mean, if you think about Melkor's career, big picture, right? You've got the first fall when he turns, you know, in the music, right? The discord in the music is Melkor's initial fall, right? But that's not the only fall. I mean, think about the, 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 the different moments, all of which are kind of a downward, I almost said a downward spiral because that's the thing you say, but it's not exactly like a spiral. Um, uh, anyway, first you've got the, the discord, right? And his, his, his rebellion against the will of Iluvatar. Then you have the destruction of the lamps, right? And that, you know, in season one, of course, we made a big deal of this, how there was at least the potential for harmony, at least Manway could believe that there was the chance for harmony there with the rest of the Valar on Almorin, and then we've got the destruction of Almorin, and that's the second stage in the fall of Melkor. And then, of course, we have the third stage, when he's actually taken and uh, imprisoned, right? And that, of course, is him falling one step lower. Um, Then you have what looks like, and this is why I've been insistent throughout season two that I want to show him positively. I don't want to have the, uh, you know, the, um, I don't want to be revealing explicitly on, on screen that he is scheming, um, because I want people to see it's, it's, it is in a sense, his time in Valinor is in a sense, almost like a reprise of his time in Almorin in the sense that it, it at least looks like he could repent you, because that's, People like Manway have to believe that that's possible, right? It's not just a question of getting suckered in by whether or not he really has repented. The bigger issue is, could he repent? Is that possible? And Manway clearly believes that it is. And frankly, I don't see any reason to to disagree with him. It's easy to get all superior. For, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about how we've got to be careful uh, to make sure that the Valar don't look like idiots, right? But I also think we've got to be careful to make sure that we don't look like idiots in talking that way about them, right? Um, Manway, if Manway believes that Melkor has repented, then I would say that would mean most likely it is in fact possible 
for Melkor to repent. Now, he doesn't, right? We know, he's, we know he doesn't, and we know he's not going to. But in a sense, that's a spoiler, <laughs> right? Um, and we can't treat it. And I think that if we treat it as if it's a no-brainer that repentance is not really possible and it's all a charade, um, that's why, again, it's, it, it's, it's, it's even less about making uh, Manway and the other Valar look, look dumb than it is about really showing to our audience that repentance is possible because I think it is possible. Um, again, theoretically, I'm not saying that Tolkien depicts Melkor as like actually coming to the cusp of repentance or truly intending to repent or anything like that. I don't think he does depict that. But again, if Melkor and Nienna believe that it's possible, I think we have to accept the theoretical idea that it is possible, right? Um, anyway, but so, so in other so therefore this moment, right, when he, at the darkening of Valinor, this is another uh, step. So it's, it's less like a downward spiral and more like Melkor tumbling down the stairs, right? So <laughs> this is Melkor falling off, you know, right you know, now slamming down onto the next level, right? And of course, there's going to be there's going to be two more levels yet in the future, right? Then the the next one uh, when he's thrown on his face and cast out, uh, you know, beyond the walls of night at the end of the first stage, and then the last one when Turin Turambar guts him like a fish at the 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 battle at the end of the world. So. He still has a couple more, a couple more levels down to fall, but this is a really important thing. So that's the main thing. And this is, again, this is, it's, it's this that I've been wanting us to set up all season long. It's why I have insisted that we show him positively, that we make it look like that we, we, we help. I want to help viewers to imagine uh, that, to imagine the potential of his repentance. Again, I'm not trying to deceive people into thinking he genuinely has repented. But what I am wanting people to do is to imagine the possibility of repentance because only then can they understand the tragedy. And it's the same thing. Remember at the end of season one, that that scene of of of, of Manway weeping as he agrees that they have to attack Melkor, right? That they have to that they have to go to war. It's like that. Right. Um, We have to see, as Manway sees, the tragedy of this Um, and that, you know, you can say, oh, obviously letting him out was dumb. It would have been the right plan to leave him in, uh, you know, just lock him up. But to, to say that is to deny him the possibility of repentance. Right. To to and and Manway obviously is not willing to do that. Um. Anyway, so his fall at the end, his decision to come in, his, his, the destruction of the trees is tragic, obviously, for the loss of the trees in themselves. But the thing that is, in a sense, even worse about it is this is the moment when Melkor falls down the next step. And we need to show that, that the, the tragic fall of this character, which hopefully we can, you know, we, we have succeeded by this point in, 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 in helping our audience to kind of invest in, again, not in the sense that they're cheering for him, but that they can appreciate. Um, at the very least, I want people to see Melkor as this horrible, like, waste, right? Um, you know, what a, what a tragic waste of, 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 of potential. And of course, Feanor is in the same situation. I completely agree 
um, uh, with Mifluin and others who were uh, saying on the discussion boards very rightly uh, between these last sessions that the choice not to give up the Silmarils is a huge, huge deal. Um, that is the moment of tragedy. Um, it's not the final moment, right? It's not, I'm not saying that it has to be the climax of the episode. Uh, you know that, that that it has to be where the where the episode comes to. But but those two moments. I mean, Melkor's decision, which he's making at the end of episode twelve, and which he acts on at the beginning of episode thirteen. That's the turning point, right? He's done at that point. He's fallen off the next cliff when he does that. When Feanor refuses to break the Silmarils, he's fallen off the cliff, right? And in a sense, the vow that, you know, his oath and, uh, you know, the, the kinslaying and the stuff that happens afterwards, in a sense, that stuff is denouement, right? I mean, that's, that is merely the playing out, you know, him walking the path that he is choosing to walk right here when he, when he does. He has the opportunity to do something. And I absolutely agree with the people who are saying he should be close, um, uh, he should be he, he he should be close to uh, to to saying yes. It, it that, again, I think that should absolutely be on the table. Um, but we'll we'll come to that uh, in in a little bit. Yeah, Tony says, I, "You want people shouting at the screen? No, Melkor, don't do it." Yes, yes. I, I and I I want people. I I want. <laughs> okay, here's a way of uh, of of saying it, Tony. The more often. We get our audience weeping along with Nienna, the more we will have succeeded in, in making and in, in doing our stuff uh, with the film film project. Um, Nienna is going to be weeping over the trees. She's also going to be weeping over over Feanor and over Melkor. Right. And that's that's what I that's what, again, not not for people to be cheering for the bad guys, but for them to be weeping over the bad guys. We can get that. We can have them, you know, lamenting for the fall of the bad guys. Then I think you know we will really have accomplished something. Um, so, I so therefore and and of course it's it seems to me pretty obviously important not only of course in our production but in the original text the the parallel here. I mean, Feanor and Melkor are are, are pretty clear parallels anyway, right? Um, and this moment, of course, the fact that these two turning points happen, you know, are directly connected to each other and happen, you know, right there next to each other. I mean, this is, again, this is something that, that, that the text kind of hands to us. Um, and I think that we need to, uh, we need to, we need to clearly take advantage of that. Yeah. Marie, Marie thinks that, uh, it will make you weep and lament is a, is a, is, is, is a great, uh, you know, sort of, um, motivation for people to 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 watch the the show i completely agree yeah yeah hey you know um no one's going to be watching the silmarillion film project in order to like cheer themselves up right i mean like it's not uh yeah yeah um Chris, exactly. In both cases, with Melkor and Fanor, in both cases, it's the tragedy of what could have been. Yeah, and we absolutely do need to make sure that our our, our, our viewers uh, um, really feel that as we're moving through. Um, one one issue I wanted to address here at the beginning as well um, 
and that is because it's a sort of a side. It came up, I think, very appropriately. Um, but it's 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 kind of a side issue. So I just wanted to talk about it at the beginning here, and it's the issue of Feanor's kingship. Um, you know whether or not he there, again there was there was some discussion of this on the discussion boards. Is he gonna is is he gonna take up the crown himself? Is he gonna is he gonna not take up the crown? Um, how is that gonna work with the succession and with the passing to Fingolfin? To what extent do we set that up and everything? Um, I um, I feel pretty strongly. Uh, Feanor has to take up the kingship. Well, no, let me say this a different way. Whether or not he puts on the crown, you know, whether or not he explicitly makes a speech being like, now I shall take up, you know, my father's position, it, it doesn't matter. He's going to be acting like the king. I mean, he's going to, the first thing he's going to do in season three um, is going to be, you know, calling all the Noldor together and saying, okay, I'm going to lead you out of Valinor now. Um, he's going to be acting as the king of the Noldor. So I think the question of, like, does he have a coronation or not is really kind of irrelevant. And frankly, I think that this is, um, this makes, um, uh, this makes Mithros's action much more significant than, you know, when he passes the kingship of the Noldor on to Fingolfin. Um, it's, it's less of a, um, you know, like, well, let me formalize something, which was, you know, but rather, I mean, he, there's every, he, there's every reason to assume, indeed, I think we should make it clear at the time, um, up there in season three, that everyone else in the Noldor are assuming that Mithros is going to step up and insist on being, and everyone's expecting trouble, and instead, Mithros steps down, um, and that should be, that should be really cool, um, so, uh, yeah, Nick is asking, can we juxtapose Feanor holding his father's crown and Melkor holding his iron crown? Yes. I love, I love that. Uh, I was going to save that for the end of the episode, Nick, but spoiler, yes. I, I love That's the idea. That's a great idea. It, it really is. Uh, the suggestion you guys were making on the discussion boards about, uh, you know, sort of the two throne room ending with Melkor returning to Angband and, and mounting his throne and Feanor mounting his father's throne and the mixed feelings involved with both. Yeah, there's a lot there. We'll come back to that a little bit more later on, but absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, I, I think that's, I, I think that's really good. So, yeah. So Marie, the question about to what extent the Noldor accept him as King. And so I don't think I even think we need to get there because he's not going to, we're not going to see him interacting with crowds yet at all. That's a season three issue. Right, um, season three is going to start with the 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 you know the the speech in Tyrion and the oath of Feanor. You know, the I I see the oath of Feanor happening at the end of episode one of season three, basically. So that whole that whole thing is uh, is is next time. I don't think he needs to be interacting with any number of Noldor uh, in this in this episode at all. I mean, post his dad's death. Um, so we don't even have to we don't even have to figure that yet. Which is just as well because we don't want to, you know, we had the reconciliation with uh, with Fingolfin in episode twelve, and I don't even really, for that reason, kind of even want to bring Fingolfin in it very very much. Like I certainly don't want to be reviving the potential power struggle between Fingolfin and Feanor. Like we brought it up, we reconciled it in the last episode. Let's let it rest. It's going to come back. It's going to be obviously a major theme of season three. We've set it up well, but that we, we don't. That's not what's going on now. You know, that's not the main focus here. We need to be focusing on the death of Finway and on the fall of Feanor and uh, and and Melkor. And 
in the light of all that stuff, you know, rivalry with his brother is going to be is going to be the last thing on his mind, and certainly should be the right. last thing on our minds, or you know, on our our viewers' minds. If they're thinking about that, they're we're 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 failing. So, um, uh, okay, so, um. Now, Chris, that is an excellent question. Indeed, Chris, that is a perfect question and exactly in line with the kind of big picture thinking that I'm wanting to do here at the beginning. Chris asks, is there any way we can tie the themes of this season finale to the opening theme of whether the elves should be in Valinor or stay in Middle-earth? What a one, That's exactly what I want to be doing now that we've come to the end of the season to be like, huh, okay. How does this all work, right? How do we get... Because you're right, Chris. That's what That was the emphasis at the beginning, right? The big first question was the relationship between the Valar and the elves. Now, to some extent, we're going to be picking up on this a lot in the next season, right? The decision to leave is the, 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 the unrest and eventual departure of the Noldor is really the thing that corresponds to the decision at the beginning. And so... Like the the true parallel really is between the um, you know the oath of Feanor and the 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 decision to leave and the debate at Quivienen right and the decision to go. Um. So we're not. So what I'm saying, Chris, is there's a sense in which no, we're not tying that up in this season. Which one could say is a problem, <laughs> or at least it's certainly something that we do need to deal with. Um, if if what happens in season two is not to look like it just kind of wanders off in a different direction. This is, of course, especially true if the frame, the Arwen frame, is primarily interested in this question of should elves be in Valinor or should they stay in Middle-earth, um, as Chris says. Um, if that's the question in the frame, we can't just leave it behind and end up weeping over Feanor and Melkor and ignoring that initial question, which we were asking, which we've been asking from the beginning. And now, Maria, I am also inclined to say that we tie it up more in the frame. Um, yeah, uh, I agree. To actually bring the frame to some kind of culmination, um, mm-hmm. which corresponds with that. Uh, but of course, because see, Chris, one of the other big problems is that it's not like we're going to set that aside, right? It's not like that question is going to be answered. Um, I mean, there's a sense in which that question is going to still be a question. Well, isn't that, that's like kind of the whole basis of Arwen's position with, with uh, her grandparents. Exactly. She's actually asking kind of that question, right? So I agree with Maria. I think that is something that uh, the frame can can contribute greatly to. Right. And not only that, it's going to be a question that others are going to be asking for a long way. Uh, I mean, like, it's going to be Goadriel's question. Like, why doesn't Goadriel go back? You know, why doesn't, why doesn't Gilgalad go back? You know, why doesn't Elrond go to Valinor? Um, you know, or to, to, to Toloresia anyway. Um, you know, what, what, what's up with that? Um, they're obviously still, at, you know, it's still an issue, is, is my point, right? Um, uh, the, the elven rings, right? And what the elven rings do, so it's an issue for Celebrimbor, right? What's up with that? You know, and the use of the three rings. Uh, so, I mean, all the way through, until the end, um, 
I mean, you could say that, that it's not really a question that's that's going to be resolved really until the end of the Lord of the Rings and the Grey Havens, essentially. Um, right. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. No, Chris is Chris is is very rightly, uh, uh, though somewhat uh, uh, painfully, I have to admit, pointing out that we have to we have to be cautious not to let film film do what the Hobbit movies did. That is raise themes and then just kind of drop them like what was the point of the Arkenstone anyway um, I hear you I hear you Chris absolutely so no we, we, but we... I, I think one of the reasons why that theme appears to be not being addressed is because we haven't really been talking about the frame but right. I think we're going to be fixing that so I think yeah. that's one of the key things which you know I suppose would require if we were really doing this to backtrack and make sure we were weaving things in appropriately you know into the story as needed but but I do think that's one of the reasons why it seems to be lacking it's just because we haven't right right returned yeah to that. yeah that was that was we'll it was it that. was it was through the frame that we were really focusing that exactly question and that we, we yeah. will continue to focus that question yeah um yeah and spoiler I mean, really come back to the, that next week yeah the 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 arc of the frame is that I mean right. you know or I don't know if it's an arc really because Arwen I don't think is going to have any different opinion at the end but anyway it's kind of yeah. what the whole conversation's about right that'll be that'll be next week's conversation right um, right but but Chris you're still right nevertheless that we do need to, to make sure that the beginning of the season and the end of the season are talking to each other right yeah true um, and uh and haven't had a spat, in other words. <laughs> right. We, we, we don't want them just to have a falling out and go their own separate ways, right? That would be bad. Um, That's right. Here's, here's let, me, let, me, let me find a piece of text and read it here. Um, because I think, the, I, I'm looking at the, uh, the Darkening of Alinor um, chapter, of course. Um, and... Um, Oh, right, because it's not in the Darkening of Valinor passage. That's that's why I'm having a hard time with it. Um, it's in the scene with Thanor when he's making his 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 decision, right? Um, and th- this is relevant, Chris, to your question, you know, and to the general issue of how does how do how do the beginning and the end of season two talk to each other? Um, so. The trees are dead, and they're asking Fanor to break the Silmarils, right? Um, Again, there was silence while Fanor brooded in the dark. It seemed to him that he was beset in a ring of enemies, and the words of Melkor returned to him, saying that the Silmarils were not safe if the Valar would possess them. And is he not Vala, as are they, said his thought? And does he not understand their hearts? Yea, a thief shall reveal thieves. Then he cried aloud, This thing I will not do of free will, but if the Valar will constrain me, then shall I know indeed that Melkor is of their kindred. And I was thinking about that. So, so Chris, th- that passage is the one that kind of came to me when... Uh, um, I was thinking about this this question, this important question that you raised, um, because of course you think about Fanor's words there, right? Um, him, the, this it seemed to him that he was beset in a ring of enemies, right? Um, think about the meeting with Orome, 
back in episode one, right? That was the big question from the beginning. Who is this big, huge, scary, intimidating person, right? You've got this, the elves, and they're being, on the one hand, they're being attacked by the Dark Rider. You know, there's this enemy that is capturing them and taking them away. Um, They're living in fear of these uh, bigger, more powerful than they, mysterious, faceless creatures that they don't know, right? And then they meet another one. But he's not an enemy, right? He's a friend. And he's terrifying. But the fear, as we talked in episode one, right, the fear that they feel of him is different than the feel that they fear of, than the, that they feel, it's hard to say that, the fear that they feel of the Dark Rider, right? Um, but that question, is he really a friend, right? What is our, what is and what should our relationship be with them? So in a sense, the specific question of the frame where do elves belong in Middle-earth or, or in Valinor, is actually derivative of the more basic question. What is the relationship between the Valar and the, and the elves, between the Valar and the children? We know what it is from the Valar's point of view, right? You know, they see themselves as like the foster parents or the, you know, the, the, the older siblings, at least, um, of, of the children of Iluvatar. But what is it? to the children of Iluvatar, right? Um, so to me, that's, the, that's sort of the juxtaposition, right? The juxtaposition is the ambassadors standing in front of Orome in episode one and Feanor standing in front of the Valar being asked to give up the Silmarils in episode 13. Um, and basically him having to decide the same thing and ultimately, tragically as we said, him going the other way with it, right? Um, so that, I think, is my answer to how does the beginning of the of the season talk to the end of the season. Um, and the fact is, we know. We know. And again, that's one of the great functions of season one. We know what the right answer is. We know how that... But again, that's one of the things that I think is really fun about um, not showing things from the Valar from the, you know, the Valian perspective much um, during the, during season two, right? And staying from the elves' point of view is that we get this sort of tension between what is being depicted, what is being hopefully very plausibly depicted on screen so that people can imaginatively enter into it and yet they should be able to retain and know what, like, the truth is, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, um... Okay, so great questions. That's awesome. Um, let's 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 move down a little bit closer to the ground now um, and think about some of the specific scenes and issues that we need to work through um, uh, to make sure that we get a handle on how we want to how, in general terms, we want to do some of the things that we are going to do here. So, um, the death of the trees. My biggest question here is how much do we visibly represent and how do we visibly represent it? So for instance, there are a couple things that look, seem to me to be really challenging here. Thing one, Ungoliant's size. How do we show this? We know that she's going to swell up and be huge, right? But we can't show that. That's dumb. I mean, it's going to look stupid. And this is, again, it's, and and my, 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 my issues here, I, I think as I was rereading, 
the Darkening of Valinor chapter, I was really struck by how, um, I mean, I, I would, I would point in some ways to the, to the, to the Darkening of Valinor as an illustration of the hard, of the challenges of making a visual adaptation out of a story. Um, because there are a lot of things that happen, a lot of things that Tolkien says uh, in the story, which, like, you can say that in a story, um, but if you actually try to depict it, you're going like, to likely end up with something uh, something completely different. Um, so, th- th- first of all, it's the, the issue of Ungoliant and her size. Um, the second thing is the unlight right um so i mean so like uh okay let's see um the light failed but the darkness that followed was more than loss of light in that hour was made a darkness that seemed not lack but a thing with being of its own for it was indeed made by malice out of light and it had power to pierce the eye and to enter heart and mind and strangle the very will now, you can say that, right? It has power to pierce the eye and enter heart and mind and strangle the very will. That's great. But you can't do that on screen. You can't, like, that sentence is almost impossible just to put on screen, right? How do you do it? How can you do it? How can you achieve a similar end in this very different medium? Um, because, you know, this is, and this is something, if I could. Um, if I could uh, 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 do a little uh, a little lit crit sidebar here for a second, um, this is something that I think twentieth century people have really lost touch with. Um, ever since the early twenty, ever since the modernists, people. This was especially true with the modernists in poetry. Um, have become so focused on visual images, right? Um, A lot of... Okay, let me me give you the the example that I'm thinking of. Uh, Andrew Marvel's poem to his coy mistress, right? Um, It's, it's, you know, a poem which is, is, you know, called... The school of poetry, right? It's called the the metaphysical poets. And... uh, Several of the modernists dislike the metaphysical poets, and I'm thinking in particular of comments that T.S. Eliot made about To His Coy Mistress. And in particular, he was puzzled, not puzzled, repelled um, by the line, My vegetable love shall grow vaster than empires and more slow. Couplet, not line. That's from To His Coy Mistress. It's an awesome couplet, and, but T.S. Eliot hated it. And the reason he hated it was that he was thinking like a 20th century person. He was, he was imagining visual images, right? He was sort of assuming that Marvel was trying to construct a visual image there. And T.S. Eliot was saying, that's really a failure as an image. My vegetable love shall grow vaster than empires and more slow. Eliot says, like, it just makes one think of, like, a huge swelling tomato. And that just doesn't work. Uh, you know, it doesn't really convey the you know, like erotic force of that, um, of that line. Uh, one of my grad school professors used to say, perhaps he would have thought it conveyed the erotic force of that line slightly better if he had imagined a carrot instead of a tomato. But the point is that when Marvel wrote that line, he wasn't, ima- he wasn't envisioning 
anything. It's not a visual image at all. It is a metaphysical conceit. That is, it's something you're supposed to think about, not something that you're supposed to picture. Okay, um, and I get, but this is what we we come straight to the heart of the issue of visual adaptation, right? On a on when you're on screen, you're stuck with visual representation. And so when you have something which in the text is not a visual image, right? You're not supposed to like that 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 passage I just read, right? The darkness, a darkness that seemed not lack, but a thing with being of its own, for it was indeed made by malice out of light, and it had power to pierce the eye and to enter heart and mind and strangle the very will. You're not supposed to picture that, right? This doesn't give you a visual image at all. It, it's, but it does help you to imagine it, right? It helps you to think about it, um, to, to, to begin to grasp with your intellect and imagination the essence of the thing, but not to picture what the scene would have looked like if you were standing there. But in a visual adaptation, we do have to show the scene as it would look if you were standing there, right? Um, so these are my questions then about, um, uh, about the death of the trees and Ungoliant. How do we prevent... If we, you know, how do we represent the things that Tolkien is descri- is describing here, without making it look dumb? Because I don't think that simply saying like, well, he describes what it should look like. Let's just make it look like that. Um, this is why you can't just do that. This is why adaptation from one medium to another is not that simple. Um, how big should Ungoliant be at the beginning? We talked about this a little bit last time. Right? Didn't didn't we say we? Didn't I say I wanted to be like waist high or something? Right? Uh, In spider form at first, sufficiently terrifying, but not yeah, like a small pony. Right? I thought that was more or less what we said. Um, And she should become more elephant-like by the end. Right? And I'm thinking not much bigger than elephant. Um, You know, too big. It just because you just lose all sense of scale, and it becomes. Not scary, but sort of, but sort of silly. Uh, Karita asked, "Waist high to whom?" Good question. Um, uh, well, Melkor basically is the only one she's standing next to. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, it, it, it could end up being, it, it, it could end up looking silly. And I do think that if we see her swelling into immensity on screen, it's going to look silly. Um, you know, if we just show her swelling and growing. Um, I, I don't think that's going to have the effect. We'll have anymore. to call. We'll have to call in Japanese animators to do that, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> or like, something. Like, yeah, the folks that have done like you know the big Japanese Hujima <laughs> Yeah, that 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 wouldn't be. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Marie, yeah, exactly. I, I I think yeah. Every time we check in with her, she's bigger, right? Um, there definitely needs to be a before and after the trees shot with her, but I think it can be more than that. I guess at the very least we have, as she is destroying the trees, but before she has drunk up the wells, right? And then after she has drunk up the wells, and then uh, you know, in the uh, after the fight, you know, with the the, the fight with Morgoth at the end. Um, so, um. Yeah, no, Hakan, I absolutely agree. It's easier, Hakan says, if she's partly shrouded in shadows. Yes, I think that Ungoliant should be very difficult to see. Um, I would like Ungoliant to be the mere suggestion of a spider. Um, we certainly should not see Ungoliant, like, 
you know, we should not be like seeing the, you know, light glinting off of, off of Ungoliant's exoskeleton, right? We should not be able to see details. She should be a, a cloud of darkness, but a cloud of darkness, which clearly conceals. I and mean, we should see spider, spider form, right? You know, like the, uh, the, the, the legs and, 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 um, well, beak is the word that Tolkien uses, um, of, uh, of, of, uh, of the spider. Um, but, uh, but yeah, not, not, not really kind of showing the, the, de- yes, yes, Marian sounds, the clicking joints and mandibles. Yes, exactly. The hideous spider sounds that we can have there. Um, and, um, Karina asks, what do I think about the handling of Shelob in the, in the Return of the, Return of the King movie? Um, I'm kicking the can on that one. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more in 20 years, but, um, <laughs> but specifically that, but Karita, I am thinking about that from, and that's exactly what I don't want. I mean, you think about the level of detail that you can see. I mean, she, she looks like a spider, just a big spider. Right. Um, in no way should I'm going it look like just a big spider. Um, she should be cloaked in darkness. And I agree, uh, Hakan, that that would help because exactly how big she is can be kind of unclear, right? And that could actually be a neat way of sort of revealing how she is growing is that, you know, the cloud that is surrounding her, the cloud doesn't necessarily have to grow, but like it sort of swirls and we see her and in, in, in like, whoa, we get a glimpse of her and she's way bigger than she was before um, can be can be really scary. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah. Um, all right, Nick is saying we, we can't kick the can too much on Sheila because we are setting an important uh, 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 sort of standard for size. Um, you know, if I'm going against... Well, well, I mean, there's no way Sheila was going to be the size of an elephant anyway, Nick, so I think we're okay. Um and she's going to be lesser than Ungoliant, and we can decide how much lesser we want her to be. Really, we're going to decide Shelob's size early on um, in Season 5. So I'm not even really kicking this 20 years down the road. I'm only kicking this, what, three years down the road. Because we're going to meet Shelob. Um, uh, uh, Baron is going to meet Shelob and Shelob's siblings, right? So we're going to, we're going to have to, we're going to have to, to, to get there. So yeah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking Shelob is more or less the size that maybe Ungoliant is at the beginning you know, at the, in episode 12, um, maybe a little bit smaller, um, you know, so maybe, uh, who sized rather than, uh, than, than, than horse sized basically. Um, but, uh, anyhow, um, and, and I would like to meet Sheila personally. We, she, she's not going to get a name. She, she needn't get named. Um, but, my, my little fantasy about this is that Baron wounds her um, and she still has the scar from Baron's wound when we meet her in the stairs of Kirith Ungol later on. And like, so, you know, so like really attentive people will notice this 20 years down the road. Um, anyway, <clears throat> do we show her next to the tree on the tree? How does she, does she just stand next to the tree? Tolkien says that Melkor smites the tree with his spear and Ungoliant sets her beak to the wound of the tree and sucks up the light and the poison um, you know, Ungoliant's poison sort of goes through the trees and they and they, uh, 
and they and they die. Um, uh, so, um, but again, if we actually picture that scene, is that how we want it? I'm thinking when I'm trying to imagine. Uh, again, not trying to picture the scene as Tolkien depicts it, because again, I don't even really think that visual depiction is what he's chiefly going for here. Instead, when I'm trying to 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 in, to, to imagine, you know, to 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 conceive of what Tolkien is describing here, the image that I have is basically think about think about um, yeah, see. Um, uh, Nick is reminding me of John Howe's painting. John Howe did do a painting of Mel- uh, Melkor and Ungoliant by the tree. I like that painting okay, Nick, but the problem is it's, it's a static image, right? How would we show the death of the trees? The, when, I, when I just imagine the trees and the trees dying, I imagine them dying as a tree dies. Imagine a tree that's being choked, like a tree that's being destroyed by gypsy moths, for instance, right? Um, especially with the, the spider thing, right? So I'm not saying she's going to put a cocoon around it, but I, I would like to see the light of the trees being sort of transformed into the unlight. We're not going to be able to really depict them. I'm not going to be able to talk about that really. Um, but the idea of like the tree, it's so not just like the tree looking nice and then and like her putting her beak to the wound and, and like the light of the tree kind of, you know, ramping down and then eventually the tree, you know, and the, the leaves wither and the tree goes dead. We could do that. Um, but I like the idea of like the un, the, the unlight from, from Ungoliant sort of wrapping around and strangling the tree to see her sort of engulfing and in that sense almost digesting the tree more than just kind of a dainty um, uh, you know I'm going to set my beak to the wound Um, I don't know I almost want her to be on it too not just standing next to it um Anyway, I don't want to get too distracted in trying to picture it exactly, but, um, but yeah, the, the the because I think that in her, in her, strangling the tree, in her not just draining it, not just draining it like a vampire, not just, uh, you know, drinking from it like from a like through a straw, um, but to see her poisoning it. Uh, to see her smothering it, to see her taking and, like, digesting, not physically the tree, but the light of the tree, and really be, yeah, engulfing, exactly. That's 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 the word I'm looking for, Marie. Um, so, yes, exactly, Hakan, there needs to be a sense of her eating. So I, I, I would want to, again, with the, and the spider form suggests that, um, for for it not to look like her taking a drink out of a out of a water fountain, right, or, or drinking out of a hose, um, uh, uh, you know, or like uh, 
you know, like she's just, you know, stuck the straw into the Capri Sun and is sucking it dry, right? But rather more like a spider eating a fly, right? So that's why I'm I'm imagining this web of darkness surrounding the tree that she's that she's uh, that she's eating. Um, uh, and yes, Tony, I think that makes sense. That th- there should be violence in the event, the pain and suffering of the trees as they die. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, the unlight? I don't know. I don't think we can do the unlight. I really don't. That's going to be hard. Yeah. Um, I think what we have to do visually is just make them like John was saying just saying John Barrow was just saying something similar like webs right Um, uh, I think that that's um, I mean Tolkien uses webs as a kind of metaphor um for the unlight uh, so yeah I think that we have to we have to kind of kind of go with that again they can be they can be sort of misty and vague right they shouldn't look like cords or something but um, uh, yeah it's tricky. Like I said, this as I was reading through, I was really, uh, I was really, sort of struck by how challenging it will be to do that, to do this scene and make it not look hokey. Um, I agree, Marie, uh, with you, and something I think Phil was saying as well on the discussion boards um, that it, um, uh, that it should happen gradually. The light should should fade. It shouldn't. Uh-huh. It shouldn't uh-huh. just be cut off. Um, I agree. I agree. Um, and that should, of course, that's the first thing that everybody over in Valmar notices, right? Um, the 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 diminishing of the light, um, and then fig- them figuring out that something is wrong. Um, let's go over to Formino. So after. After they take down the trees, and Ungoliant is huge, and it's going to be dark. It's going to. I mean, this. It's, I mean, think about this again. It's one thing to say that there was no light, and then there was also an unlight, right? So we have like levels of darkness, and of course, as we've talked about before, you can't exactly show a pitch dark scene for very long, uh, you know, in a visual medium, and still have it be very interesting. Um, Again, in a narrative book, you can describe what's happening in the darkness. It's harder to show what's happening in the darkness on screen. Um, and, uh, yeah, so how do you show, like, it's dark, but then the unlight shows up? Um, so that's going to be tricky. Anyway, let's go up to Formanos. Uh There were a bunch of really good ideas about... Uh, um, oh, great. Marie says that uh, it was uh, the gradual dying of the trees was Ren's idea on the board. That's great. Thank you for... Uh, for, for for crediting Ren there. I've liked a bunch of uh, friends' ideas. Um, when we get to Formanos, I love the ideas that you guys had about 
Finway. Um, I absolutely agree that Finway needs to die a good death. Um, this is sort of the last moment that we have for, for, for Finway to uh, sort of redeem himself and not look like a complete wuss. So him dying a noble and kingly death, um, I'm a fan of the idea that uh, several people were talking about, about Finway um, basically sacrificing himself to save everybody else. Um, people were talking about, uh, I think it was Marielle was talking about you know parallels, possible parallels between Finway standing up to Melkor and uh, and and Fingolfin standing up to Melkor later on. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail. Indeed, I wouldn't want to go to any, into any detail there. My vote would be not to have Finway's death happen on screen. Um, I think his sacrifice should happen, right? Like we we know that he's planning to stand up. To you know, to to try to delay or, you know, bar the door against Morgoth to to prevent you know to 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 enable his people to escape. I also really did like the idea of the priorities to have people in the household saying you know, uh, you know we must we must save the 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 gems you know we must and and to have fan and to have Finway show that his priorities are in the right place right that he's dying not to save his son's jewels but to save his people. Um, it's I, that that I really really liked, um, and so the idea of like I am going to go and challenge Morgoth. There can be a parallel and a parallel that we can make much of. I'm just saying I don't want to parallel it with the actual fight with Fingolfin. I don't want to show the fight because I don't think there's going to be a fight. I mean, it's one thing to go and challenge Morgoth to a duel at his gate. It's another thing to stand in front of Morgoth and Giganto. Ungoliant, right? I mean that that's just that's just putting that's just like standing on the train tracks. You know, that's not that's not a duel, even in the sense in which Fingolfin's uh duel was a duel. I mean Fingolfin's duel is already a little bit like suicide. Um uh, this is much more like suicide. Yes, Nick, it's over much more quickly than the duel between Fingolfin and Morgoth. Uh, not only would Finway not give uh, 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 Morgoth seven wounds, I don't think he would strike, swing seven times uh, uh, even. Um, yeah, so so yeah, no, there's no way that I think he can do anything at all. And I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to show him dying futilely, right? I think I'd, the, what I think we want to emphasize is his choice to stand and the reason that he's doing it, um, not to, again, not to save the gems, but to save the people. Uh, so, so yes. And Lincoln, that's a really interesting point. Lincoln says it would be great to set up Finway as a contrast to his descendants, uh, who will be committing atrocities against their own kin for the sake of a few gems. Uh, yeah, yeah, that would be an interesting setup for the kin slaying and for, you know, the, the, uh, the, the attack on the, um, on Doriath and the, the, um, you know the the settlement by the Bay of Balar and everything later on. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, um, so yes, yes, exactly. Marie, Marie says him standing at the gate as the darkness approaches is the last image we want of him. Yes, exa- well, except maybe his broken corpse afterwards. We might see that, uh, but I don't want to. I don't want to show him just getting run over uh, or squashed like a bug. Um, uh, and. Um, the I have questions about the thieves' quarrel. That is the 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 
the fight between Ungoliant and Melkor. Um, I'm assuming that the actual theft of the Silmarils, the actual emptying of the vaults of Feanor happens off screen. Um, I mean, like, showing Melkor, like, what? Like, going through Feanor's treasury and stuffing all the stuff into a bag like he's some kind of cat burglar would, like, lower Melkor, right? So let's let's make the actual pillaging happen off screen, I'm, I'm thinking. Um... So he comes, um, he comes against Ungoliant. Ungoliant is going to stop him, right? I'm thinking, by the way, this has to happen close to Angband. Um, I mean, I know where it happens on the map. But if we're going to depict this, like the immediacy with which we're wanting to depict this on screen... Um, We've got to be. Uh, uh, we've got to be. By immediacy, I mean the the Balrogs coming to his rescue, right? They've got to be pretty well close to hand, if they're going to show up in the nick of time to drive off on Goliant, because she's got to be right on the point of, of doing him in. Um, Moreover, remember the motivation for the quarrel. As he is getting close to the center of his power, Ungoliant gets suspicious, right? He has promised that, you know, and, and I said I want to keep the line about with both hands I will give it, right, uh, in, at the end of, of episode 12. Um, we've got to, so she, she can see he's trying to wiggle out of it. He's trying to get to his strong place and then he's going to refuse. So she stops him before he can get there. Um, so dramatically speaking, in the book, he is close to his goal, right? And it's as they're getting close that she, she you know, twigs to what he's doing and stops him, right? So I'm just saying I think that if, um, if we were to actually depict this happening within distant sight of Angband, that would... Uh, to me, sort of fit the spirit of what the narrative is 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 saying there. Now, Marie, this is an excellent. Uh, that was exactly my next question. Are we preserving her dialogue? We have to, right? We have to have an actual debate. But how do we do the sound again? I talked about this last time, right? If we have like a giant, a visible giant spider with like clicking mandibles and you know, waving feelers and legs and a, and a human voice coming out of it like Aragog, it's gonna, it, it's gonna not be the right effect. I am, I am anti that effect, but Tony, I agree with you. Her dialogue is awesome. So I'm also anti the cutting of her dialogue and the making of the thieves quarrel into a, into a totally nonverbal affair. I think the only so basically, this leaves us with two options. If we don't have a giant spider with lines, we do one of two things. We either, Maria, as you suggest, keep her in shadows, or we um, turn her back into human form. I don't think we can turn her back into human form without losing how horribly intimidating she is, right? In the sense that giganto elephant spider um, is, can mess him up. <laughs> it's like, he's in real danger. Like, Melkor is actually in danger from Ungoliant. If she resumes her human form, we're going to have a hard time maintaining 
the sense of the disparity between them. Right. So I think that I think that she will have to be speaking from the shadows. Murray suggests she could be speaking to his mind directly. Um, yeah, so we could have a, a kind of a telepathic conversation between the two of them. Or, Maria it could be un- unclear which is which, right? I mean, if it's just, if we can't see her at all, if she is just in the shed, if all we're seeing is the occasional spidery glimpse from within the the sort of sludgy swirling. And I think that, by the way, the unlight should not look like mist or cloud. I think it should look like sludge. I think it should, it should, it should be, uh, it, it should look... Uh, like tar, except slightly less viscous. Um, but anyway, uh, from within this, uh, within this, uh, this, well, we don't want her to look like the blob either, but anyway, whatever. Um, uh, this, this swirling, viscous, nasty, oily darkness, um, we, we have a voice come, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that I think I think that's really that's really the best way to do it. Um, and then she and then she ensnares him, right? Well, no, she's already ensnared him. And then we, you know, he's 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 about to be. You know, we can have her manifest her form, or like she can emerge from the darkness as she is coming and is is about to to do. And there should be a parallel, I think. Um, uh, I think there should be. Um, I think there should be a parallel between what she's about to do to him and like physically a parallel. Um, like she, she approaches him and she adopts like the same posture that she adopted when she took out the trees, right? What she's going to do is eat him. Uh, she's going to eat him and absorb his power. Like she ate the trees and absorbed their power. And I think if we, if we set that up physically in that way, it will help to convey, um, the, to sort of answer the question that a lot of people could have, like, dude, wait, isn't Melkor immortal? Like, how's he going to die? Remember, we had that issue with Ungoliant the first time when she took Nessa captive in season one. Um, you know, are they really in danger of the Valar? Like, what's the story with that? Um, wh- again, one way that we can suggest that it's that it's more than that, right, is, uh, uh, is that she is... The idea that she's going to... That she's going to absorb him... Um, like she absorbed the tree. I mean, the trees were immortal too, and yet she absorbed the power of the trees. So, anyway, um, that's um, and then the fire of the Balrogs kind of burning off the darkness uh, is uh, is something that um, that we can that I think will work pretty well visually. See that part of the story, the rescue, the the scream of Morgoth and the rescue by the Balrogs. That's something that works much much better and much more easily on 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 in, in a visual depiction, I think, than uh, um, than other things. Um, okay, so let's go to Fanor's choice not to give the Silmarils. As I said before, I agree that Feanor's choice has to be a really tragic moment. Um, And there was some debate on the boards about how serious, like, basically, with Feanor as we've depicted him, how plausible is it that he's really genuinely serious about, um, about not, um, about giving up the Silmarils? You know, can we really see our Feanor doing that? 
And my answer is yes, I, I do think that we can see our fan are doing that. And all we have to do is show his, his, his compassion for the death of the trees. I mean, the death of the trees is a big deal and it would be a big deal to Fanor. Um, you know, the light of the trees are where he got the Silmarils in the, um, in the first place. Right. I mean, um, uh, so. Um, what would be going on in Fianor's mind? I mean, you know, on the one hand, he would be sad. I could see on the other hand thinking, well, at least I have them trapped. You know, at least I have them. At least I have the light in the, you know, because my Silmarils. Right. Um, right. Um, uh, notice that the, the approach of Yovana. The light of the trees has passed away and lives now only in the Silmarils of Feanor. Foresighted was he, she says, right? Um, even for arrogant Feanor, full of himself Feanor, there's something there, right? Um, you know, like, the trees of Valinor are the center of the... And remember we made a big deal of this with the ambassadors back in episode three, right? Or episode two it was, rather? Um, the trees are the big deal about Valinor. Right. And basically, on one level, I'm not saying this is the only level in which Feanor is thinking about it, but on one level, it's got to be a little bit appealing, right? Hey, uh, Feanor, would you like to, um, would you like to rebrand the trees of Valinor? Like, with your brand, right? They, everyone would be like, <laughs> we're going to have the two trees, and right between them will be a statue of Feanor, in which we'll say, like, Oh, it's all thanks to the foresighted Feanor that, like, if it weren't for Feanor, the trees would be dead. But, like, the, the, so, I mean, the, the, the trees, the greatest of the works of the Valar, oh, except they're actually now derivative of, so his work was derivative of them, but now they would be derivative of him, right? I mean, this, it's, I'm not saying that, that she, that, that, that this would be what he's primarily thinking, right? That this is his main. But there's an appeal. But, there's got to be an appeal there. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. First and foremost, he's just devastated by the destruction of the trees. He, he understands beauty. He, he, he would feel the loss of the trees. Um, what I'm, all, all I'm saying is the question is not... It seems to me that the issue of... I can't imagine our proud fan or actually considering letting the Silmarils go seriously, I'm saying there would be an appeal to his arrogance, to his pride in letting them go. Um, right. It's not just a question of him losing them. I mean, they would be lost. But, but of course, you see there's, there's a kind of irony in that scene, right? Just as the Silmarils end up serving as a kind of um, uh, insurance policy on the trees, right? Just in case we lose the trees, we're going we're gonna, to we're, we're gonna put some of the light of the trees in a, in a, in a safe deposit box, right? Uh, so, that, uh, so that we've got some in case of emergency. You know, like we're keeping them, you know, in like the Valinorian root cellar, right? Um, uh, but the same thing works the other way around, right? Had he 
you know, if 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 uh, the Silmarils could be broken and remade into the trees, then the Silmarils themselves would be like then then the tree the the trees of Valinor 2.0 would themselves be the security for the Silmarils because of course he can lose and can and does lose the Silmarils. Whereas had he taken them and broken them and uh, remade the trees, <clears throat> then. Uh, then obviously the light of the, the he would not have light lost the light of the Silmarils. Um, he wouldn't have them, and he wouldn't have them all to himself. But they would still be. So, um, anyway, I. So yeah, the the issue on the boards people were talking about. Maybe he should be really on the cusp of saying yes. Um. Until. Um. Until. Tolkis says his piece. And then, you know, when Tolkis comes in, you know, with, yeah, you know, speak Onoldo, yay or nay. Um, and that really kind of pushes him over the edge. Possibly. I hate to make Tolkis the bad guy all the time. Uh, um, but that does kind of seem to be his role in that scene. Um, hard to do his line in a completely different way, given the line that he's actually, he actually gets in the book. Um, the harder thing to me is how do we the passage that I read about Fanor's thoughts that's all internal right again another thing it's easy to it's easy enough in a book to describe what the person is thinking harder in a film to show that Um, so yeah yeah, and Marie, yeah, I, I, Marie, I noticed you were making the parallel with the stairs of Kirith Ungol, and I think it's a really interesting parallel. Um, uh, and she's trying to reconcile me to using Tolkis as the bad guy here, because of course Sam was the bad guy in the stair- And of course, the, when I say the stairs of Kirith Ungol scene, we're referring to Gollum's moment, right? When Gollum almost repents, and then Sam wakes up and yells at him, and it's that moment when he, Gollum, you know. You know, Tolkien in his letters identifies that as like the point of no return for Gollum. Um, the tragic moment when he almost repented but then doesn't uh, because of Sam's words. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I think that's... Um, I think that's neat. Yeah, Marie, I agree. We can show a lot of his thoughts visually. Um I would want him sort of standing there alone and having the Valar just looming over him in a in a circle, right? And so we can we can even like as he's thinking kind of change the camera angle so that like he's looking up at the Valar and they're looking scary and intimidating. Again, remember Orame in episode 1, right? We get sort of a we should return to that kind of feel of this huge powerful godlike figure emerges out of the trees and you don't know whether to run away or not. Right. Um, yeah. So I think one of the things about Fanor, you know, when we go to casting, we need somebody who really who has that Martin Freeman ability to right. act with just his nonverbal stuff, but more Fanor like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so keep that in mind when we're we're, we're nominating and voting on Fanor because he needs to be somebody who's really good at nonverbal acting. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 certainly true. Um, so I, I'm okay with that. I, I, I'm okay with making Tolkis the bad guy and having him sort of. But but, but I agree. This is the this is the moment, right? This is the culminating moment of Fanor for the entire season, 
right? So this is really crucial. This is his moment of fall. Um, Theonor has has done some... I mean, the drawing of the sword on his brother seems like the big turning point, but it's not the big turning point, right? Th- that's, I think, the thing that kind of comes out here. Um, uh, this is the moment where he really determines his path. He could still turn back. Um, but, uh... Um, anyway, uh, so, okay, so, he says no. Now, one question that, uh, was, uh, another question that was raised, by the way, as you can tell from all the references I'm making to the discussion boards this week, you guys were great on the discussion boards this week. I I thought the material you guys came up with, uh, the ideas you had and the discussions you had were really inspiring this week. Um, I mean, they usually are, but this, but this was pretty. I know. I was going to so. say, yeah. yeah. The rest of the weeks, you're they're like, man, this week was really <laughs> exactly. Good. This week, you guys, you guys were actually doing some work. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Marie, are you suggesting that's what happens when I give you three weeks, right, man? Three weeks, yeah, that's true. That's true. You had extra time. <laughs> um, but okay, okay. So, so the question was, how do we do the reception of the news of? The, of the loss of the Silmarils and, and, and Finway's death, there was some defense of the idea of Feanor actually going to Formanos and, fi- and finding for himself like that the, that the Silmarils are gone. Um, do, we, do we do it like it is depicted in the book? Do we have, at this moment, you know, right after he says, no, I won't do it, we have a messenger, like random Joe Elf messenger come in um, and say... Uh, uh, hey, uh, ooh, um, bad news, Fanor, your dad's dead, and Silmarils are gone. Um, did you just get the news right there? Um, I agree, I absolutely agree with Marie that we've got to keep, um, we've got to keep, uh, uh, um, the line, Mandos' line, one of the greatest lines Mandos has, right, when, uh, uh, when Fanor says in his uh, in the moment of his fall I shall be slain first of all the elves right and then and Mando says not the first right um, we absolutely have to keep the not the first line um, but I, I actually kind of like the idea of having that come immediately before right so Mando says not the first and right after that the messenger approaches um I think I think that could work. That could work uh, uh, pretty well. For the sake of visual impact, I think I kind of like the idea of Feanor going back to Formanos. For one thing, Feanor leaves, right? I mean, in, in the book, we know nothing of Feanor's movements. Um, so, like, after he hears that Formanos has fallen and his dad is dead and the Silmarils are gone. Then Feanor rose and lifting up his hand before Manway, he cursed Melkor, naming him Morgoth, the black foe of the world. Uh, and he cursed the summons of Manway. And then he ran from the Ring of Doom and fled into the night. And that's it. The next time we see Feanor is when he shows up with the torches and swears the oath and, and gets everybody to leave. So he just flees off into the night and vanishes off screen. Um... I like the idea of showing where he goes, and he because he would go to Formanos. Obviously, that's where he would go. Um, and I think a scene of of Fanor, you know, kneeling over Finway's body, uh, I, I we need that scene. I would say. Um, so, 
So I, 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 I like the idea of him going back to Formanos, whether or not maybe we um, maybe we don't have the messenger say anything. That is, the messenger comes in um, and he just addresses Feanor, right? The, the scene ends after, after Mando says, not the first. The messenger comes in and, uh, and you know, just uh, uh, either looks really ominous or just, you know, begins to speak to Feanor, you know, like, my lord, or something like that. And, but then we don't hear exactly what he says and we cut the next scene to Feanor, you know, running in through the gates of Formanos and finding his dad's body and... Um, and finding the uh, the Silmarils gone, so that we, whether or not it was said before, we don't get it in exposition. We 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 see it hitting Feanor. We see Feanor with the body of his father. We see Feanor standing in the you know the ruins of his treasury at Formanos, um, looking at whatever really fancy stand he built for the Silmarils that's now broken and empty. Um, but uh, after this, they mourn the they they mourn the trees. I had a I had a I, I had a little inspiration. Oh yeah, we've got a. Do we ever get to see Fan or cursing Manway and the Valar, Chris? Let's save that. Um, he's going to do plenty of cursing of Manway and the Valar in episode one of season three. Yeah, I was going to say we could start off the season with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll get a bunch of cursing. Cursing is going yeah, to they'll, they'll be. Plenty of cursing in season three, um, but we do need to have the Morgoth thing. But but again, I think that can be that can be because this this is almost the end, right? He can curse Melkor and call him Morgoth in the ruins of Formanos, right? Um, like over the body of his father or standing in his treasury, whichever we want to do. I would vote for his father. Um, following the prompt of the text, saying that he did hold his father more valuable than the Silmarils. Um, so as Feanor is there kneeling over the body of his father, he curses Melkor thrice and names him Morgoth. Um, right. I think that would work really well. Um, but and that'll be the first time we hear that name, right? Yes, exactly. It'll be the first use of the name. Um, uh, unless we have Elrond and Galadriel use it. Oh, he mentions it, I think, in season one, doesn't he? Yeah, well, we talked about that, about how... I, but I, doesn't, I think Elrond says like something like he was not always named so, or I don't forget. Yes. But... Yeah, well, no, we were talking about how, like, the issue... People were saying, like, how are we going to have them talking about Melkor since, like, it right. really says they wouldn't use his name anymore. And my counter-argument to that was uh, Elrond would, in, like, with scholarly detachment, he would... Uh, I can't imagine Elvish lore masters being like... Uh, Morgoth was previously named something, but I'm not going to say what his. I mean, a I, name that cannot be named. Na- exactly. <laughs> they wouldn't. They wouldn't. It's not like they would hold the name sacred. They wouldn't refer to him that way, but they would talk about the you fact that his name had yeah. been. I mean, I don't think it would be like, you know, the 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 lore of it would be lost. Um, anyway, so, um, <clears throat> uh, so let's let's let's. Let's not worry about that. But anyway, we have the moment of Fanor cursing him and naming him Morgoth. But I had a little inspiration. I, 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 I had a little flash of a scene that I really want to do. And again, this kind of connects in another way, uh, Chris, to the question you were having about the earlier part of the season, talking to the later part of the season. Um, Nienna. Um, Nienna's tears. 
after Fanor says no. So we, we I, I say we've got uh, Fanor refusing and then the messenger coming in and then we get the scene in Formanos and Fanor's grief and Fanor's cursing of Melkor and naming him Morgoth. Then we cut back to, Val- to Valmar um, and the mounds and the dead trees and the, la- the lamentation of the elves and the Valar. Um over the trees, which they now know for certain will not be able to be uh, uh, to be to be recovered. Nienna is weeping over the mound. Now, here's the the thing that I uh, the 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 inspiration that I had. This is, of course, the second time that Nienna is weeping over the mounds. She did that when the trees grew. Um, when the trees are made. Yavanna is singing around the mound, and Nienna waters the mound with her tears when you know on the day that the trees grow and Now we have Nienna watering the ground with her tears again in mourning as the trees are dead. Here's what I would like to do. I would like to have that be exactly parallel that is to show Nienna in the same posture and with the same facial expression in the same spot weeping over the mound of the trees. What I would like to suggest is that um, when she's weep- when she's watering the mound with her tears the first time, she's already mourning them. She is foreseeing their destruction and knowing that they won't last forever. And she is, in the moment of their arising, already mourning the loss that is going to be. Um... And I think that we it's 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 one way that we can sort of show the 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 sort of the link there and kind of point to the mystery of Nienna's character as well. Um, Nienna's no fool. She knows stuff. Um, and uh, anyway. she can kill you with her brain. No, wrong <laughs> show. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Wrong show. Wrong show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, but anyway, yeah. I so yeah, that's Nessa. Marie says that's Nessa. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that is Nessa, isn't it? Sorry, we're not making like a long series of inside jokes, which you should probably explain. It's terrible. It's a Firefly reference. It's a Firefly reference. Yes, and we've cast. You mean people wouldn't know that? Oh my god! And we've cast Summer Glau as Nessa. Um, that's right. So that's why it's Nessa who can kill you with your brain. Um, so yes, the actress of whom that was said in Firefly, we have cast as Nessa, uh, just to explain the complex web of inside references that we were just making, both to our own casting in the previous season and to Firefly. Um, but anyway, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so... Uh, so good, yeah. And by the way, I'm entirely in favor of getting as much of the Firefly cast as we can uh, into uh, uh, into the film film project. I think that's uh, uh, that's all that's all uh, that's all to the good. Um, uh, okay, so oh yeah, and there's a um, along with my Nienna inspiration came uh, uh, a line that I really want to hear delivered. Um, and that is, so the last sentence of the chapter of the darkening of Valinor is really awesome. Um, <clears throat> but when the darkness had passed, it was too late. Melkor had gone whither he would and his vengeance was achieved. 
his vengeance was achieved. It's such a great ending of that chapter, right? Um, and the inspiration that I had was somebody should say that, right? One of the Valar should say that. Like uh, maybe Aule or like one of the people who's like wise and sort of leaderly, but not really like... Uh, anyway, somebody plausible. Like Aule or Yavanna, maybe, who's mourning over the trees. Um, uh, right when it happens, before they appeal to Fanor, right? So before they appeal to Fanor, before he has said no, at the opening of that scene, when they first come to the trees and find them destroyed, they say, it's Melkor, right? And, and one of the Valar says, uh, now his vengeance is achieved. Uh, and then we have the scene with Fanor, and Fanor says no, and Fanor leaves. And when Fanor leaves in wrath and grief, having just turned them down and refused to give up the Silmarils, Manwe watches him go. And Manwe, looking at Fanor, says, Now Melkor's vengeance is achieved. That it's the fall of Feanor. And here, of course, I'm picking up on the scene from later on in the, when when uh, the narrator speaks of Manwe weeping over the fall, over, over the marring of Feanor. Um, and I would like to incorporate that um, here earlier on. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, Nick and Maria are both thinking of Olmo. It could be Olmo's I told you so, right? Um, Olmo comes and he's like, well, oh. now his vengeance is achieved. Right, exactly. Yeah, I like that. I yeah. like that. Um, and then, yeah. But, uh, but, I don't think uh, Olmo is above being a t- I told you so. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so either. I don't think so either. But, um, but yeah, but, but, I, but I really think it should be Manway who has the insight uh, into Feanor's character yeah. and, the, and the significance yeah. of that. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. So then at the very end, we do need to get, like, if we think about where we want to end up, we, we, we've got to be ready for the departure next time. Um, so we do need to get Melkor back to Angband. Um, I love the idea that people were suggesting, and Nick, you were talking about it, but the whole two crowns thing, um, ending the season with, with, uh, with Morgoth ascending his, reascending his throne and putting on his iron crown with the Silmarils blazing in it. Um, uh, and then having Feanor assuming his throne. Because you see the irony, right? The horrible, biting irony of the final scene of the episode. The episode has shown the fall of these two characters, right? Both Melkor and Feanor have fallen in this episode. And the episode ends with both of them ascending a throne. Ascending, yeah. Right? As if they've conquered, right? But of course, right. both of them are deceived. Um uh, so I love the irony of that of that of that ending. So I do think that Feanor should take up his father's throne. I don't think it needs to be a public thing. I don't think it should be a public thing. Um, but uh, um, but oh, and I'm forgetting who it was. Was it Phil or maybe Hakon on the discussion board who was emphasizing when uh, Morgoth um, is putting on his throne or when he's holding the Silmarils, um, he should be we can't just show him being like jubilant and glad that he has the Silmarils. We've got to show him in pain because uh, the Silmarils burn him. And I'm thinking we want to do that then at the end. I think we reveal that. I think that's even the f- possibly the very final image of the entire 
episode is uh, Morgoth in triumph, but that we would have to show, I'm not sure exactly how to do it, to show like the crown searing into his skin, like to show the pain that he is in from the Silmarils and how the Silmarils are burning him. Um, the, the, the fact that the Silmarils are burning his hand is revealed in the book in the confrontation with Ungoliant. But I don't want to do that. I think that's too much to try to reveal visually all at once. Um, I want to save that so that basically, because again, I want to show the, the irony. I want to show the fall, right? So when it looks like Morgoth has escaped, right? He's escaped. So he, he, he not only got away, but he also, you know, he, he has, his, his vengeance has been, has been, has been, has been accomplished, has been achieved. And, uh, you know, everything went his way and he's got the Silmarils for himself and, and, and he can now sit back on his throne and laugh. But as he's sitting back on his, even if he is sitting back on his throne and laughing, yet we see the, the inescapable pain that he, that he is in. Um, it was Phil Murray. I thought that was, that was, that was Phil Murray's suggesting we could just sort of show, show his, his burned hand. Um, that could work that we see the, the Silmarils on his crown um, and we show him laughing and it looks like triumph and we kind of pan back and you see his hand and his hand can have the three like charred marks where the Silmarils, uh, where the, we can show him in the confrontation with Ungoliant taking the Silmarils and clasping them in his fist, right? To hold them from her, but don't show what happens. And in that final scene, we can show his, his open palm, uh, and show the, the right. three burn marks where the Silmarils, um, uh, um, have uh, have have marred him, and and I mean, like the the, the wounds can still be smoking. I mean, uh, and yes, Tony, the Silmarils cause him pain when he wears them in the crown. Yes, they did. They should. They absolutely should. Um, the 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 <clears throat> it is it is an ironic fulfillment when the Iron Crown of Melkor is beaten into a collar for his neck at the end. Um, there is, of course, a sense in which his iron crown has always been a collar for his neck and an instrument of torture that he has made for himself. Again, that's part of the whole, um, the, the, tra- the, whole, the tragedy of his fall. Um, but uh, <laughs> Kurita says, him laughing while showing his burned hand makes him seem crazy, which is fine. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Kurita. Exactly. And, but that's kind of, that's right. We you know we show him looking pleased, right? Looking like he's, he's, he's getting the last laugh, but yes, showing the, the pain that he's actually in. I, I would think that it would give a, a, an edge to his laughter, which uh, shows that he's not in fact the, uh, um, the, um, the victor of the whole thing. Um, <laughs> okay, that's pretty good, Chris. Chris says he wears the irony crown. Um, yes, 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 he does. Yes, he does. Um, okay, so, but with Fanor, we have to show Fanor, and again, um, uh, you guys were good on this in the in the on the discussion boards too. Um, he Fanor still has to look conflicted. Right. Not just like I'm sad for my father, but I'm going to take up his crown kind of conflicted. Um, But, uh, you know, he's he's. um, 
Well, where is he? Where exactly do we want to show Feanor in the final scene? Um, you know, where is he at the end of his arc? Oh, and by the way, we need Nardanel at Formanos too, don't we? Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I think we just have Nardanel being supportive, right? I mean, she's going to lose any sympathy that she has with the, the viewers if while he's, like, kneeling over the corpse of his dead father, she's like, see, you shouldn't have been a jerk. <laughs> or, like, you totally should have given them to someone else. Like, she can, you know, she's resistant to him and there's been distance between them. But I think, I think we end this with, like, a tender moment with them um, and her sympathy for him. Um, and that, I think, will make her, her speaking against him at the you know, in episode one, stronger. Um, so, so yeah. Um, yes, Hakon, the ruins of Formanos could be the final scene with Feanor. We could make him take up the crown at the end of that scene. Um, because, of course, it's Finway's crown, so it would be with Finway. Um, so we could handle that there. Uh, that would make sense because then we wouldn't need to find him a different place. Like we, I, we would not want to bring him back to Tyrion. Um, he should arrive at Tyrion, breaking his banishment in episode one of season three, definitely. Um, but uh, um, yeah, so I think we can do that. But then, how would the sequencing go? Valar show up at the tree, at the dead trees. Um, Omo delivers his line about the vengeance being achieved. They go to Fanor. Fanor has his moment. He has his tragic fall. The messenger comes in. He runs off to Formanos. Manway delivers his line. Mm-hmm. Then we cut to Formanos because we don't even know the Silmarils are gone yet. We can't do the thieves' quarrel until after the Silmarils are gone. But I want to have an immediate juxtaposition. Well, maybe we return to Formanos. Okay, so we have we have him going to Formanos, weeping over Finway. Finding that the Silmarils are gone, attempt you know Nerdanel attempting to comfort him. Then we go, um, uh, then we go to the thieves' quarrel, right, with Ungoliant and Morgoth and Morgoth's escape. Um, then we can go straight from Morgoth's escape. Morgoth can escape and go to the Iron. No, do we want to do it the other way? No. Then we return to Feanor in Formanos to his brief scene with the crown, and then we can return to Morgoth. And his iron crown and the Silmarils. And that can be the final... Yes, so that the final visual image is the burned hand of of Morgoth. Yeah, that would work. That would work. Oh, yeah, who's the messenger? Maria's calling me on the fact that I said it should be like random Joe Elf messenger. Of course, we have way too many Elvish characters that we want to introduce to give any role to somebody who is not named, right? Um, uh, we have so many named characters that we have no room for extras. Um, so who should be the messenger? It's got to be somebody from Formanos. One of his kids? Right. And by, that's probably the best thing, have it be one of his kids. No, wait. Huan. Yeah, yeah, yeah Hakan was thinking the same thing. It's got to be Huan. Yeah. Problem solved. Problem solved. Who on just comes in and Fanor looks at him and is like, "What is Finway stuck in the well?" I'll go. Yeah, and he and he goes. Right <laughs> <on>. um, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I, yeah. Um, 
Uh, no, you're right. I know Marie. We said Huan would be at the party. I was just wanting to give him a role, right? Um, but it's okay. It's it's fine. We can have a we 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 the Huan cameo in this episode is easy, right? I mean, we just have Huan, Huan just has to be making really sad doggy eyes by the dead trees, right? We we can have the we can have a really touching little shot of you know of 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 Huan sniffing the trees, you know, uh, uh, looking. <clears throat> looking all doggy faced and doleful, right? That's that's that right. that's 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 super easy. Um Ah, Tony's saying what if it's Nerdinel? Didn't we say that Nerdinel was gonna stay behind? Wasn't she staying in Formulas and not going to the party? Yeah, I thought she was. I thought she was if that's in true then yeah, it totally should be Nerdinel. It totally should be Nerdinel. I was wondering um, if it should be a woman. I mean, how? F- in fact, because that's that's super easy to work into the scene with into Finway's last scene, right? Finway tells them all to run, um, and he will bar the way to to Melkor. Mm-hmm. And it's got it's got to be Nerdinel that he's talking to. If Nerdinel's there, she's the she's she's the boss, right? Um, mm-hmm. So he would be saying to Nerdinel, "Get the rest of the," and he would say to Nerdinel, "Like, go get Fanor." Um. So, and that also even makes it easier to have that final, like, have her coming in non-verbally, basically. I mean, Fanor is there with the Valar, and his wife comes running in. Like, she wouldn't have to say anything, right? One look at his wife rushing in, uh, having, you know, he's going to know. Like, uh, there's trouble at the mill, right? Uh, And off he's going to go running. So, so yeah, I think think that's... um, yeah, did we say that she was going? Nick is saying she was, uh, uh, she was, she was going. Oh, Hakon and Nick were suggesting ke- uh, uh, like uh, Teen Celebrimbor as a way to get him in on this, but no, I don't want him playing that active a role. But anyway, I really think this needs to be Nerdinel. She would come and she would go. Like that would be one of the reasons that she would not stay herself, right? You know, Finway would say, "Go, you know, go tell Fanor." Um, and she would she would rush over to tell Fanor and to bring him back. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's got to be it's got to be nerdy now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, that's that's definitely so. Yeah, so I agree, Murray. She's definitely staying home from the party now. Um, okay. Um, good, good. Well, I think that's it. I think that's I think that that gets us through the climax. Now next week, um, we've we've so we've mapped out all the episodes. Um, what we do need to do is we need to go back and finish our work on the frame. You know, we talked about the frame uh, during our special campaign episode, but we didn't get all the way through. Um, I, I know that uh, plot folks have been working on that a little bit, but I want to return. I want to do uh, give the frame the treatment that we have been uh, cheating it uh, of. You know, over the last, uh, we've been kind of indulging ourselves and not talking about the frame to sort of give ourselves more time to focus on this other stuff. But we totally have to do that. So we'll talk about the frame, the overall shape of the frame, some of the specific ideas and 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 storylines of the frame. Um, but of course, in some ways, I, I almost like doing the frame now because we have the shape of the whole season and we can think about True. the shape of the frame and how it works uh, and fits. How it can contribute into the main so. story. Yeah. 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 Um, so, um, 
so yeah, so so we'll go back and we'll talk about that. I also want to, and I think we can do this in the same episode. He says confidently. Um, I, I want to talk about the bad guy plot as well. We spent a, a good deal of time hashing out the overall movements and themes and concept of the bad guy plot a long time ago. We spent like three quarters of a whole session talking about that when we should have been talking about something else. Um, but again, I want to just kind of revisit those ideas and think again about sort of the overall shape and integration um, and how we want to um, ways in which we want to bring that story into contact with with the other story and with sort of the main story. Um, the other thing next week is we will have uh, the opening nominations for casting mm-hmm. uh, as of the end of next uh, next episode. Yeah. Time to cast some elves. And we're going to do this in the three-stage process that we did last time, which was first to open it for nominations, second to uh, allow people to vote, third to announce to sort of go through and announce decisions. Oh, wait, I guess it's a fourth stage process. and then Because the, then the fourth stage is us getting blamed for choices that we didn't even make. That's the fourth choice. That's the fourth <laughs> stage of the process. Uh, <laughs> still, it's tough at the top. What it is. It is. I, I should, I should, I should, I should like, Marie, I'm going to make a t-shirt. Benedict Cumberbatch is not my fault. Like I didn't choose Benedict Cumberbatch for <laughs> for Elrond. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, but anyway. That's right. um, oh, saying if I didn't veto, it's my responsibility. Oh, come now. Like will the people, man? Will the people? This is a democracy, unless I find did, that inconvenient. We did veto some, but yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> anyway. Okay. Um, so. It's fine. So that'll be a fun process. Um, we're going to have, you know, we will do, after we do the, uh, talk about the frame and talk about the bad guy plot, um, we're then going to do and do some of our post-production stuff. We're going to be talking about, just like we did last time, we're going to be talking about, uh, uh, you know, visuals and scenes and, uh, and costuming and, uh, and music and, uh, and all those other things that, uh, that we've talked, that we talked about before to kind of flesh out the season now that we're looking back on, uh, the shape of the entire thing. Um, next week we will announce, uh, the, the sort of schedule for the rest of the season, uh, with those and, um, we'll, um, uh, and we'll, um, yeah, we'll, so, so then we'll, we'll, we'll come in and, and, and we'll announce those things. Then we'll be wrapping up season two. We're, we're not far from the end now of season two. We're only... Oh. We're, only, we're only a couple months away, which is, um, yeah. So, okay. And, uh, uh, the script outline discussion for episode 12 is tomorrow night at seven thirty PM, uh, Eastern time. So if you want to talk about the hashing out the details of the outline of episode 12, uh, you can meet with them then. Um, cool. Very good. Yeah. So we're, 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 we're moving right along. I'm excited to, excited to get up into, into season three. Uh, that doing doing the the final working out of the tragedy of Feanor and the doom of the Noldor and the kin slaying and the <clears throat> burning of the ships and uh, you know Mithros on the cliff all that stuff is going to be really fun. So because um, what's not fun about like slaughter and tragedy and horrible people doing horrible <laughs> things to good people and Woo-hoo! good times, <laughs> it's be good times indeed. Um, 
So, uh, so that'll be great. Uh, so thanks very much, everybody. Don't forget, um, especially for our live attendees, that we're going to be meeting next week. This week was um, the reschedule from the holidays, so um, we're we're going back to our original schedule next week. So, um, so we will be meeting one week from today, not two weeks from today. Um, uh, so that's good. Let's see. When do I want the script outlines turned in? Yeah, great question. Um, I'll get back to you on that. Um, we'll do, we'll do, we'll talk about the script outlines and stuff at the end of the post-production set. So, um, you know, that you still have a little bit of time to sort of refine things and stuff, but, um, good, good, very good. So thanks everybody for joining us. I'm sorry Dave couldn't be with us here today, but I think he'll be able to be with us next week. I actually did, uh, looking at I actually did get a text from him. Oh, did you? Yeah. Uh, okay. Apologizing that he couldn't make it today. Was what we suspected? Oh, he didn't yes, say why. Yes, he said, uh, he said, uh, he said, um, it looks like I'm going to need one more week of paternity leave. So, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but he, 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 he does uh, sanguinely believe he's going to be ready for next time. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, well, thanks for listening, everybody. Godspeed.